Welcome to Photographers Talking, the podcast that brings you some of the most innovative and respected photographers in the business. We'll find out what goes on behind the camera and why it's every bit as interesting as the images you see. I'm Chris McNulty, I've been a photographer and picture editor for over 20 years and I'll introduce you to the people who make the most dynamic and interesting images in the world today. I have to say from the minute I developed my first print I was kind of hooked. Alan Colvin is a Scottish artist whose work combines photography, painting and installation and often deals with issues surrounding Scottish identity and culture. He has had solo exhibitions at the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, the Royal Scottish Academy and he has a number of works in the collections of the Tate Galleries and the British Council. He is also a Professor of Fine Art at the University of Dundee. I began by asking Callum if he could describe his work for us. Well, that's an interesting one. Describing my work's always kind of tricky. I suppose what you might call it is a, a kind of hybrid practice which combines photography uh, with painting and sculpture into a kind of principle using trompe l'oeil techniques from painting to use the fixed point perspective uh, of a camera to uh, build these painting, sculpture large-scale photographic artworks. Uh, are they normally installations when they're, they're in, when they're displayed? They're not installations when they're displayed. They're installations when they're made in my studio, but nearly always uh, they are the end result of a photograph, usually a large-scale colour uh, photographic print. And I very much make the work to that end. I make them to be photographic prints. And there's a sort of trick, isn't there, where if you were to move your head very slightly to one side, it would start to come apart, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is a trump lorry or trick of the eye. Um, Essentially, it's anamorphosis, um, a version of anamorphosis. So you you see it's used quite a lot. It's been used in painting since the the Renaissance. Uh, In the case of my work, it's used... Not always. Uh, not all my work is done in that way, but most of it is used using this technique because it's quite simple. Though it looks very complex, I've always found it kind of simple, and I, I like the kind of collage effect. Even though the work isn't really collage, it has the effect of collage or the look of collage. How do people react to your work? What do they think? Um, or are you ever standing in a gallery and you hear someone? speak out loud what they think about your work how, how is it how is it received do you think <laughs> yeah well i do use drop occasionally it's true <laughs> um, i think people uh, what we tend to forget is you know using your visual senses a uh, is something that needs to be exercised and in a way my work does kind of exercise you visually because it is a a process of deconstruction in terms of you look at the work and people get quite um, drawn into the work because they're, they're trying to figure out what they're looking at and I've always been aware of that right from the beginning of my career and I realised quite early that that was a way to draw people into other kinds of narrative and other kind of subjects and mm-hmm. uh, to, to get people thinking in a different way really. I've, I've always noticed that that technique kind of does that uh, so, you know, people talk a lot about that work, you know, like that's the guy that does the stuff in the, in the tricks of the eye. But to my mind, that's just really the beginning rather than the end. Yeah, uh, the work kind of almost kind of invites you to sort of deconstruct it or make sense of it in your own mind, doesn't it, if you're looking at it? Uh... 
Yeah, it does, and people often don't understand, and it takes a long time. But as I intimated earlier, that's because you kind of um, you need to, you know, you exercise your vision in the sense of the way you look at things. I mean, that's what artists do. They they look photographers. If you want to make a distinction between both those uh, methodologies, um, you know, visual people they do that all the time. You know, you interpret the world visually. You you see things. Uh, in a certain way, and you, you, what you, you tend to forget is people who who don't do that for a living, as it were, uh, tend to need a little bit more time to kind of work that out. Yeah, and that, but that also kind of um, kind of creates an audience for your work, I think. And we should say at this point as well, uh, while we're speaking, that you can go along to callumcolvin dot com and you can see the works that we'll be talking about today and the techniques that you you employ. And yes, I also have a book out, and the constructed uh, worlds of Callum Colvin, which is published by Luath Press, and that came out about a year or so ago, just before the pandemic. <laughs> and I presume that that's available in all good bookshops. It is, yes, and uh, online retailers as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and via Luath a uh, website and um, Amazon and all the rest of it. I, and I'll put links uh, to that in the description of the podcast, and people can find those there. As you said earlier, you're interested or you're known uh, as the guy who uses, you know, uh, maybe trick of the light or optical tricks or toys or effects, uh, anamorphosis. You feel that's maybe not entirely, that's maybe true, but that's not all your work is. But is that how you became interested in photography and art? You know, looking at um, playing with kaleidoscopes as a kid or whatever? No, actually not at all. I I to um photography really kind of by accident and in fact um really when i got into photography i was a student studying sculpture at dundee college of art and um i just took it up as an aside really i just it was a secondary subject but um from i was taught by joe mckenzie the great uh, scottish uh, documentary photographer and um I have to say, from the minute I developed my first print, I was kind of hooked uh, on on that kind of traditional documentary yeah. style, street photography, black and white. Um, I love printing black and white, but still, still do quite enjoy it. Um, you know, I came I came into that way, and actually, I just um, I got so involved in uh, photography, I, I kind of neglected my studies as a sculptor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, when I was when I was doing my diploma, I um, just I, I developed uh, techniques that I thought I could still use cameras, but they would have more of a sculptural, uh, painterly kind of um, methodology. And I kind of I thought that was just something that would get me through a course, but it kind of stuck with me. Uh, and I really liked that kind of idea of the studio based photographer, uh, though of course my studio is not like your average yeah. photographic studio. It's interesting how many artists I've spoken to over the years are photographing myself and whatever they study, it's a stepping stone to whatever they end up doing. Um, yeah. You know, whether it's been, there's so many people I've photographed that came through the textiles, Thorsten and Hoyk, uh, but I've ended up not doing that. Yeah, well, that's, art schools are like that. They're kind of incubators for a yeah. creative life. They're not necessarily uh, setting you up for what they're training you in. 
Yes. They, they give you, you know, all art schools are creative. Uh, schools are, um, you know, they're, they're kind of incubators for um, alternative thinking, if you like. I can't remember what series is. I can't find it on my on the computer just now. What series is that you did with the where you've got a, a con a convex mirror and all of the images? I uh, quite a few of them have used. Aye. I um, that that mirror thing is um, a, a lot of the work I make um, is a uh, it's kind of inspired by literature and particularly Scottish literature. When I was young, I I was a voracious reader and right. um, really got into a literature and later on and Scottish literature because when I was young, all things Scottish were taboo and ignored. But uh, later on in life, you kind of start looking at your own culture or you realise you've actually yeah. got a culture and you start looking at it. Um, I, so I, a lot of what I, when I first started making work, I, there was a kind of sense of dwelling on my youth. I, and I was thinking about all that kind of, um, I, those convex mirrors in a lot of people's houses. My grandmother's house, she loved those convex mirrors. And I, as a child, I used to spend hours staring at them because of the way they distorted the world uh, and you know, it seemed like a kind of way into another world. And that's what the metaphor is in the work with the convex mirrors. You see, as the Bonnie Prince Charlie series that I was looking at, uh, uh, Jacobite, Jacobite's my name, and I was looking at it and I was probably overanalyzing it. I was saying, oh, that's like the, the Arnolfini portrait, you know, with the mirror and the background. And I thought, no, they were in everybody's house when you were growing up, weren't they? That's a good um, reminder, yes, because that Arnolfini thing is evoked in a sense there as well. Because when you look in detail at that painting, uh, you see the artist reflected in the mirror and you see the um, the subject, the back of the subject. Mm-hmm. And I used that specifically in a portrait, in fact, that I did of the composer James Macmillan for the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, where... I kind of did a painting of James, James's head in this room, but I had James himself in the picture uh, through a window, and <laughs> he was sitting at a piano, and then really? I appeared via a convex mirror, and I was kind of working all the flash that was exposing uh, the photograph. Uh, right. That's certainly, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. Those were the things that fascinated when I, me when I was with kaleidoscopes and those mirrors and things that would bend, uh, bend the light and make things look different. It just uh, yeah, I mean, there's stuff, I mean, there was interest mentioned the kaleidoscope because I kind of, um, at a certain point, I can't remember when it was, um, 2005, 2007, around about then, I um, I began to really think about um, stereo photography. Uh, and I started, I was often a very interested in history, and I started um, looking at the history of stereo photography and it kind of it led me to Sir David Brewster who in, in fact invented uh, the kaleidoscope uh, but he also invented the lenticular stereoscope and he was a, a great uh, kind of grumpy old Scottish git who <laughs> also uh, he, um, really kind of facilitated uh, the early establishment of Scottish photography. It was a remarkably um, uh, interesting man who had a, a wide variety of interests. Scientists in those days, of course, were natural philosophers who were, were very interested in phenomena. 
Uh, and the more I read about Brewster and his world and his connection to Fox Talbot and his connection to Helen, I kind of saw all these worlds and kind of coming out uh, out of this. And I saw David Brewster in relation to Magic Lanterns. He was very interested in this. He wrote a book called um, Letters on Natural Magic Addressed to Sir Walter Scott, which was a kind of riposte, a book that Walter Scott had written uh, about a superstition. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's all these things become a kind of narrative around ideas of the magic in photography, the, the kind of normality and the other worlds. So um, I did a whole series of 3D photographs because I was thinking when I did that, that what I would do was through a 3D photograph, I would reveal exactly the process of making. Uh, but what I came to realize was a 3D photograph uh, is still a still photograph, and therefore it, it doesn't, uh, when you do that as a stereo, it, it just looks like something else. It becomes another world that you enter yeah. into. Yes, it's still, it's still two photographs merged together. It, it doesn't become, yeah. Although, do you know what is interesting? I think the first time I remember seeing that idea being moved forward uh, was in The Matrix. I think people might know the famous shot where Neo jumps up and they had a series of uh, 35mm cameras, I think, all the way right round about him, and then uh-huh. pieced those images together and put them in slow motion so someone does hang in, th- in, in mid-air and it gives you that kind of rotation, which yeah. um, is, is probably the ultimate realisation of what you were you were saying there. Um, yeah, it, was, and, um, it was interesting because when, when I did this project from David mm-hmm. Brewster, I worked with a, a visual psychologist at the University of Dundee and he gave me a lot of, kind of background information about that whole history of uh, vision and its relationship to philosophy and its relationship to science. And it really made me think about the role photography plays in that way. But just very recently, I worked with a, another colleague at the University of Dundee where he is making, we're still working on it, but it's a 3D uh, representation of one of my works, uh, which involved me making the picture in my normal way, but then uh-huh. taking literally thousands of separate pictures of the, of the picture, of the structure in its entirety. Uh, and we're cre- and we're, uh, that is in the process of being recreated as a, as a kind of fly-through uh, 3D render picture. Oh, right. yeah, it was interesting, I think, for the 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 person involved or the people involved that I'm working with, because it turned out to be kind of quite tricky, uh, but really interesting. And the early results are looking really amazing, and it sort of opened up all kinds of possibilities in other ways for future projects. It, it, that's fantastic, isn't it? I just said that the the ultimate realization was something twenty years ago, and it's not really, is it? The the technology moves on. Yeah, and I mean, I know it's that in photography in general. You know, um, I'm still, I still work with film. I work with a ten by studio camera. The camera's older than me, you know, I've, and yeah. I've used the same lens <laughs> throughout my entire career. And occasionally, I shoot it on five by four film, but mostly, I, I, even that seems to me a bit like an instant camera. Mostly, <laughs> I like film whenever I can source it. Uh, and I, you know, and I like the formality of that. I, I like the yeah. fact that the size of the image, the depth of um, detail that can be captured that way. Uh, but, you know, that technology, it's kind of set. It's never really going to, it's not going to get better. Whereas the digital 
constantly improves and all kinds yes. of stuff becomes possible. And you're shooting, if you're saying you're shooting 10 by 8, that's to create the final work, is that right? Yes, to, to record the the work that you've created, yeah? Yeah, I'm the world's slowest photographer. I mean, I spend, uh, I work on a set that can take months and months. I mean, the, the picture I've been working on this afternoon is um, I've been working on and off for nearly two years on. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been doing lots of other things in between, but I, I kept coming back to this one because it's quite complicated and I was never really sure I could make it work. Yeah, you don't want to rush these things. I get into the bit where I'm thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe I can yeah. take a photograph soon. But it's not easy uh, to get hold of ten eight film. I don't suppose, is it? Do you have to kind of order it in and keep it in the freezer for a while, uh, and you have to be very careful about when you. Yeah. It's funny, because um, somebody I can't remember who it was. I was reading about it for a while. It was very, very difficult to get hold of, uh, and it was because when they kind of stopped making it, yeah. And, some guy in the States bought every box of film on the planet yeah. and deep froze it somewhere in the Nevada desert or something. Right, uh, but yeah. Anyway, I was buying some stuff from Japan for a while, but now I find there's a place in New York that has it. Uh, and it's actually cheaper than it is buying it from London. What happens is it comes in to a couple of shops in London and it goes out the door right, sort of yeah. a week. So you've kind of got to kind of book in and... Uh, and get some, and it's horrendously expensive now. Yeah, but as you say, if you're if you're not uh, snapping it every day, then I suppose it probably works out in the long run, doesn't it? No, that's right. And you can do tests and stuff like that. You can do digital tests and stuff. Yeah. I've got a very old um, digital bag that I use just to get a, a test, and I, I shoot tests on five four and stuff like that. So yeah, I use much less film. I was very lucky uh, and. I don't know how long ago, but 20 years ago, <laughs> Fuji uh, gave me dozens and dozens of boxes of 10 film. Um, really? I, a lot of it was because it was quite close to the sell-by date, and they just gave it to me. I asked if they could sponsor me, and they just said, here, Callum, take all of it. Um, so well, that was great, but now that stuff's too old. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it still fetch a pretty penny if you stuck it up on eBay all the same. People love expired film these days for... Uh, yeah, well, people are. And you can get away with it. As long as it's been kept properly, you can get away with quite old film. Uh, but that's uh, okay for tests, but for the, for the finished thing... Aye, you want to get a, a fresh film. And, you know, I as these things sometimes happen, I read twice within two days about Cibachrome. Once was uh, a question somebody asked on a group on Facebook. For talk, uh, I uh-huh. think the other time was I, I read about it in a description of some of your work. And sadly, Cibachrome is no longer with us. You can get it in New York, I believe. Um, I, yeah, I think somebody in New York, you can, but it's... Oh, really? They're not, I mean, it was really what it did for Cibachrome was environmental controls because it's, you know, it uses a lot of bleach and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's still actually, you know, it's a bit like film, you know, you can't find it in places, but you, you can't get it in the UK at all. And you, in New York, if you care to nip over there, you can get it done. How do you realise your final work, the image? Do you, do you get it scanned now and, or do you just send it yeah. to a lab? And... <laughs> there is nowhere. I, I would have to, I'd have to outsource to uh, two new places like New York any other way. I mean, and everybody digitises now. I, you know, so it kind of doesn't really matter. If you want, if you were a purist, you would take. You know, I shoot on transparency, and I would get a Cibachrome made, and 
Yeah. That would be fine. But to be honest, Cybercrone was a nightmare. It was so contrasty. It was really difficult. Yeah. And for a little while, I, you know, you can get these, what they call these um, C-type prints made um, digitally, um, Lambda prints. For a while, there was a kind of Lambda-type process for Cybercrone. Right. Uh, and I made one print with it. Uh, for a client in the States whose house had burnt down and it was a replacement uh, to the, the one that, that, that had been in their house. And um, I got it done and it was great because of the digital uh, intervention, you were able to bring the contrast down and deal with a lot of the problems around right, yeah. Zebrachrome. But <laughs> I got that done and I was very happy. And then they said, oh, that's the last one. That's the last roll of paper <laughs> that we're using. So that right. was that. Uh, but, um, I mean, the other thing with Cibachrome is uh, doing really big prints. Um, a, a slight change in temperature in the chemicals halfway through a sheet of film would change the colour. Yeah. It was really difficult stuff to use. It was beautiful, though. Really beautiful yes. intensity, uh, amazing stuff. I think I only had one or two prints ever made. I can't remember. I don't even think I've got them anymore. Do you think digital has robbed photography of something from your uh, point of view, or is it making your life a lot easier? Um, I think there's, it's both those things. I mean, it, it is really useful and scanning and all kinds of stuff, and that, that whole digital world, you know, it's fantastic. But uh, you know, what happened was when I, all the companies that did photographic printing, uh, when they changed over to digital, uh, they, all the money went into the machinery yeah. and very little into the staffing. And uh, because they'd invested so heavily, in my view, what they did was put, they put kind of relatively inexperienced people in charge of the machines. Uh, and they also became obsessed with time. So they kept, you know, they, they just did everything in a massive hurry. And yeah. there was a bit of a, a loss of that kind of relationship between the client and the printer. Uh, yes. I ended up going off and finding myself a kind of a, a, a more of a, a kind of art-based sole trader type digital printer who I work with. But that kind of thing of working with big labs and getting to know the printer really well, that kind of that died out really. I, simply because just the investment in the in the technology was so massive. They invest in all this machinery and then it's defunct a few years later constantly reinvesting became a big thing for them. Although a lot of these companies, they grow bigger and bigger, don't they? As you say, maybe to soak up some of that other work. But a lot of people, you know, in the, that business, they, they're not getting the work anymore because people don't necessarily want wedding prints or the graduation picture for the, the, the wall. Yeah, that's kind of true. But um, I think there's a, there's a kind of danger in that because, you know, everybody ends up losing those digital files at some Disaster or other, or other there's, I think there's a bit of a ticking time bomb there. Uh, but certainly in terms of what I do, people want to buy the picture off the wall, which is which is a relief. <laughs> yes. It's funny you say that. I, I saw, oh, it, it was quite a while ago now, I think Eamon McCabe on Channel 4 News, and they were saying, they were talking about digital photography as it, as it was coming through, and he was making the point, he said, oh, I still shoot uh, black and white, I get it developed. He's able to do that. And he uh -huh. said, no one knows how long this digital stuff is going to last. He said, I know I can go over there and pull the eggs off the shelf. And I've got them and I know they'll always be there. But no one knows how long this digital stuff's going to last. Like, he's got a pretty valid point there. 
Last thing was it was I has always worried me is um, the kind of backing up thing. You know, I'm just yeah. I'm organized. You know, you know people think well, you shoot it digitally, you've got the digital file. Uh, you know, you've got whatever it is a TIFF, and it's a, you know, maybe it's a massive two hundred megabyte TIFF file. Uh, you've got it on your machine, but then you think, wait a minute, what happens if the machine uh, dies on me? So you got a backup, yeah. and then you think, well, what happens if that backup dies? So you back it up twice. Uh, and then that backup is problematic. So you actually, with um, a, a digital photograph, you have a huge legacy of maintenance with it. <laughs> That's true, yeah. I'm sitting right next to me here in my office, and I've got an old-fashioned filing cabinet. And you know, I always laugh and say to my wife, you know, when this cabinet is full, that's when I'll be. That's when I'll be gone. It's only half full, but I have all my work in it, and it's all on Tiny and Five Film. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. As Callum mentioned, there's a couple of books available at the moment and you'll find links to them in the description of this podcast. I also wanted to let you know that uh, previous guest Kirsty Mackay's book, The Fish That Never Swam, is available to pre-order from our website, kirstymackay.com. And next week I'll be talking to photographer Lynn McEwen about becoming a crime writer and her book In Dark Water is available everywhere you get books now. Back to our interview. Yeah, I mean, I think generally the standards in art schools are, are much better than they were, better than they were in my day, for sure. Um, yeah. it's, you know, it's a tough world for young people. And sometimes I meet people of my age who are at art school and they say, oh, it's no, it's not the same as it was. And I go, no, it's not, it's better. Uh, you know, the, the standards, the equipment, the, all the technology, the students rise to all these things. The course I teach on a uh, is um is fine art it's a fine art course and we have an art and philosophy course. I but the students are, are kind of interdisciplinary and you know I I'm comfortable with that. I you know I whilst I come out of a photographic tradition, I, most of the students are not aware of that. I, I after I studied sculpture I went to London and I, I went to Royal College of Art and I studied uh, photography there and the one of the first tutorials I had was with Bill Brand. Oh really who, wow and you know now to first i was concerned i was shaking the hand of the man who had worked with man ray and you know you were yeah. right in that tradition and they came out of the surrealist movement i was already seeing myself moving into some form of a fine art photographic practice so you know with the arrogance of youth i thought well yeah this is this is the world i want to inhabit yeah uh, but I taught students, they, they, it's highly unlikely they would know who Bill Brandt was. And they might vaguely have heard of Man Ray, but even then, that's unlikely. Really? Um, yeah. I don't think in that sense they understand the traditions in photography, but then, you know, why should they? It's there for them to discover if they if they need to, I suppose, or they, they want to. I'm sure they'll all go down a rabbit hole at one point and, and find that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, photography... Um, kind of changed in a way and that you know it's not separate from a fine art quite in the way that it was i mean one of the interesting things that happened in recent times was the kind of transformation of a form of documentary photography into kind of becoming large-scale art fine art prints and galleries and you know that yeah prior to that 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 was just not art as was seen 
you know, and then, you know, these interesting people took it in another direction. Um, but, you know, there was always that big tussle between the artist and the photographer. And I've never really bothered. I've never really got too concerned about the distinctions because I would look at people like Brandt, like Man Ray. I mean, Man Ray was a pretty good painter, but he was a better photographer. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I, I, you know, I'm a better photographer than I am a painter. But I incorporate these things in. And, you know, a lot of what my work reflects on is processes of making and the differences in painted light and reflected light. And it kind of um, meditates on its own existence in a sense. Do you know, in the last podcast, the last person that interviewed was Kirsty Mackay, and she observed something that I hadn't really thought about before. When people take selfies or pictures of their cups of coffee or their bit of cake, or, you know, whatever they're doing, uh, and they post them on their social media. She said, these are mini celebrations now. <laughs> and in the way that, you know, maybe when we were younger, you might, somebody would have taken a picture on your birthday or on Christmas or, you know, painting a, an Easter egg or something like that. And yeah. photography's now become, but these things are recorded more often. So I suppose in a way they've become devalued. Uh, because there's so much of it. But then again, you get to look at the whole history. You get to look at your own history. Maybe that's why you don't necessarily need to go and look at Man Ray or Bill Brandt or whoever. Yeah, well, I mean, people are really, um, you know, the, the camera is attached to the phone uh, in a kind of way. And you know, actually, I mean, I love my iPhone camera. I think my iPhone's a really pretty mediocre phone, but it's a cracking camera. I love taking pictures with it. Uh, maybe because in a strange way, it reminds me of a view camera. Um, but I, I love the, the quality. It's, it just gets better every time you, you buy a new camera. Uh, and, but I like kind of quite carefully taking photos, you know, and, and if I, I don't, as a habit or as a rule, I don't photograph my dinner and post it online. Because <laughs> I never quite understood why people do that. Uh, but if I did, we'd spend quite a lot of time composing it and getting it just right. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I, didn't, I hadn't really thought about it until Kirsty mentioned it, and I hadn't really thought about what you were saying. What you'd said there—it's quite like a view camera, I suppose. It is really, isn't it? You're, um, yeah. you're composing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the film earlier. You mentioned you talked about um, what was the film you mentioned? Um, uh, was uh, uh, the Matrix. The Matrix. But um, you know, I often thought, and I remember when uh, Blade Runner, the first one came out, and there's that great scene where the Harrison Ford character is is homing in on a photographic image, and he gets yes. the scales on a replicant snake's back. I remember at the time, uh, this I mean, when that film came out, that was pre-digital, all that stuff. But I remember looking, thinking, yeah, that's the future of photography, where you have that kind of fidelity, and uh, you know, that's what we're seeing happening now with. A, essentially a, a pocket camera, a pocket phone, uh, becoming this extraordinarily um, sophisticated camera. And, you know, eventually I, that, that phone that's sitting on my desk here will, will have will do 200 megabyte photographic, yeah. highly detailed images. Uh, we're not there yet, but eventually we will be there. Got a question written down here that says, "Do you have a camera that you walk about with?" But is it really just your iPhone that you record that you use when you're out and about? 
Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really like digital cameras. I, I tried to. I've got a few of them. I and um, I was using my little kind of Fuji digital. Um, I can't remember which one it is. Uh, but it was a nine hundred odd quid camera, and uh, I never much liked it. It's right. kind of been, it's kind of it's one of those retro kind of rangefinder based type cameras. And, uh, I thought I always thought it took really beautiful images at, at night and stuff like that, and very poor uh, light levels. The, the quality is really remarkable. But in every other instance, I just. I don't know. I, I find them too complicated, these cameras, and, you know, I'm just too old, maybe. But I like really, really simple cameras. So they, I wish somebody would just come out with a digital camera that just had the very, very basic uh, controls. When I was learning photography, the, the best camera to uh, use was, I think it was called the Pentax K1000, uh, because it was, um, the thing about it, it was just so simple. Uh, and the thinking uh, was that if you understand how this camera works, you understand the basics of photography. Uh, and I, I just can't bear all these bloody menus and all that stuff that you get in digital cameras. Uh, I, I, I just, I just don't like that. I think it's to save. I think it saves the manufacturers from putting an extra button or a dial on the top, and they hide it all in a menu, and then you get this massive book and if. If anyone ever hands me one of those cameras, I can't. I, can't, I have no idea what to do with it. I don't know how you would. It was always like that, and you know, in the eighties when I was, I was in London and uh, I shared uh, studios with various other artists and photographers, and uh, you know, uh, and you you would live in pretty hand to mouth, and you would always when we bought cameras, and you know, my mates were working for Vogue and all sorts of stuff. You bought, well, you bought cameras from the back pages of Amateur Photographer because Amateur bought the, the medium format cameras and they would keep them for six months and then sell them because the next one would come out. But anybody really working with a camera, they don't care about that. They just want something really simple. And you buy a second-hand camera that some amateur photographers getting rid of because the next one's out. Every photographer I know them never really care about that. It's all down to quality, quality of the lens, really, at the end of the day. And something, a camera that you just know how to work. You know, that's all you need. If you use the same film all the time, you know what it's going to react yeah. in, a, in any given situation. And it's going to get scratched and battered pretty quickly anyway, isn't it? So it's, going to, it's a worker, isn't it? So Yeah. So my lens is I don't know, at least 25 years old. So if you look after them, they're fine. After, and you can get them serviced. They're always repairable. The cheaper the cheaper ones aren't necessarily cheap, but you can't get them fixed very easily either. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, my tiny camera is older than me, and it works fine. Speaking about photography, was there ever a time when you could, if you look back, where you, you can think, if I hadn't found my own voice and it hadn't kind of taken off, I would have become a, f a full-time job in commercial photographer photographing taps or weddings or, you know, annual reports or... Was that ever an option for you, do you think? I, not really. I don't think I was good enough for that. I, you know, I've photography in many different worlds and I have tremendous respect for people um, who can do that stuff. I mean, I was out chatting with David Eustace recently. I went around to visit him and you know, I couldn't, I couldn't work to that kind of in that world that David works in because it's uh -huh. just it's so high, kind of 
demand and it involves a, a tremendous amount of interaction and control and all sorts of stuff. You know, I, I would have done something else, I think. I would have been an artist, a creative person in some way. Right, but okay. Probably okay. if I wasn't making a, my work in the way that I was doing, then I, I would I would be a sculptor maybe or, or maybe a set designer or something like that. Um, you know, I've, I've done that kind of thing in the past and I've worked in the theatre and things. Uh, you know, I don't always just do stuff for galleries. And I have done some commercial work, but never particularly got into that scene. Right. Um, I, I should just say that David Justas was on this podcast and people can check back on other episodes and hear that uh, fascinating Yes, I'm sure it's hugely uh, interesting and entertaining. Do you know, something that has come up, actually, when I was speaking to David and everyone else, as photographers, access is all important. Now, that could be access to a building somewhere that's kind of restricted, like a hospital or, you know, an, an area that you need special permission to go to. And I hadn't really thought about it until I started speaking to people about the access that, that we get as photographers. It's, and in one sense, you could call it access. In another sense, I suppose you could call it forward planning. Is that something that you recognise in your in your own work? I suppose you're working in your studio quite a lot, but what what's the access that allows you to to make work? Well, that's not really a, an issue for me. I, I suppose you know I've done, I do quite a lot of portraiture. You know, we were just talking about David Eustace, uh, and David, I mean David's done portraits of um, just about everybody in the world, the most famous people, and uh, that, that in itself, I mean David. It does it, I guess, because my, it's all set up, usually, I would imagine, as part of a, a magazine consignment sort of thing. But, um, I, you know, sometimes there's been some people I would have liked to have made portraits of, uh, and it's, it's quite hard to actually get access to, to very famous people who you might want to. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the people that I've met made portraits have been by commission by somebody like the Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh or, that kind of way, but um, in terms of other things, I, I work in a studio, you know, and I have a vague idea of a picture that I want to make, and then I kind of I develop the idea in my head over a quite a long period of time. Then I start assembling various things that I've been thinking about that become part of the picture, and then I actually make it over a period of time, and then I photograph it. You know, it's all pretty well. You know, it's it's planned over a period of time, uh, so I don't really have those those types of um, of worries, I suppose. Do you think people sometimes people wouldn't consider asking you to go and do a series of portraits because you're seen maybe as doing a certain type of thing? You know, I, maybe I don't really know because I'm always kind of busy. I've, I've always got stuff going on, so I you know I don't. Um, you know, I've never found myself in, I don't know, when did I graduate? I became a, a working artist photographer in uh, uh, 1986 or so. I, and, and all that time, I've never been without a deadline, without a piece of work to make, right. without, without stuff going on. So, I, you know, it's fine. You know, and I, I've, I turned down quite a lot of things, cause, not because I'm not interested, but just I don't have time. Um, and also, I'm I'm an academic after a fashion, <laughs> uh, and I you know I'm teaching. I'm in that world. I mean, I think um, being in the world of uh, in an art school is really great because you're mixing with creative people, 
all the time. Whereas if I was in my studio, which sometimes you wish you were in your studio all the time, but effectively you're just on your own all the time. Yeah. Kind of howling at the moon and kind of... <laughs> uh, <laughs> that could be really good for a while, but you do get a bit lonely. <laughs> so many artists watch Radio 4, it's not because it's good, it's just because they're desperate for some human <laughs> contact. <laughs> get a cat or a dog, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Do you ever think about doing something more simple like that, where you just get a camera, a pretty simple camera system, and just go and do window-lit portraits and maybe work on a long-term documentary or just something quite straightforward? But I like taking pictures, but um, you know, the last book that I did, I, I did actually with a poet called Robert Crawford, uh, and it was all pictures taken on an iPhone. Uh-huh. And, uh, he, it was all about Brexit, and it was a mixture of images that I'd made with my iPhone uh, and uh, some kind of wordplay stuff that he did. Uh, and we just put it together with that and printed it, published it, and the whole thing. So it was a different kind of way, and we made a show of it, and we made an installation. So you, know, you can do all kinds of things with the simplest of means. Uh, you know, and I, I, don't, I see it as um, what I do in the studio is like the big, big canvases. It's like the formal yeah. thing that the, the painter in the 16th century might have done. <laughs> uh, and the other stuff outside is just like sketching. I just see it as sketches and finished paintings, as it were. The content of what you work with, it's a lot to do with Scottish identity and stuff that we you would recognise as being particularly Scottish, isn't it? Um, yeah, shortbread sure. tins and sort of kitsch things. Is that fair to say? I, it's not a word that I use particularly um, because a, a lot of it actually is about you know it's, it's about things that I kind of grew up with and um, I, the word kitsch in my mind always puts them somewhere else. I would right. as as part of uh, my historical kind of background, my kind of heritage, as it were. And um, so in a way, it's uh, quite grounded things, I think, in right. a way. You know, I, you know you, and kitsch, I mean, kitsch is a, is a good word. I mean, if you, you talk about Donald uh, Trump's apartment and Trump Tower in New York and yeah. Well, vast amounts of money, that's kitsch. But generally speaking, when, when we use that word, we, we think about um, the kind of the more um, the more working class type objects. Uh, and um, that, that's why I sort of steer away from it a little bit, because it's more about context and, and history and, you know, where we're coming from. I, I don't come from a privileged background and I don't come from a poor background either, but I come from a kind of a, a kind of hierarchy of the way people lived and moved through society in Scotland from my great-grandparents to my children. And I'm kind of interested in that and those, those, those different Scotlands that we all inhabit. Uh, and also, uh, what I became increasingly interested in about Scotland is it's, it's a kind of contested territory. Uh, you know, and you don't have to jump on the, the political aspect of it because up until 2014, nobody was much interested in that. And now it's everything seen through a political lens. But, you know, and that in itself is kind of interesting. We live in a country that some people are saying is not a country. 
we have a heritage that some people say is not heritage. You know, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, it's, that's, and to me, it's also the, it's the fact that I've been so interested in literature uh, and increasingly uh, Scottish literature, Scottish poetry. And, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm trying to make a, a version of Scottish photography that, that is grounded in that, I suppose. Are the objects that, you've, that you find uh, that you place within your pictures, like, like the concave, convex, or the shortbread tins, or the little things that you've seen around about maybe your living room or your granny's living room, how do you collect those? Do you are, you are you constantly in the troll through charity shops, or do you keep an eye on eBay for little gems? Or yeah, uh, well, both these things. I mean, uh, at first, when I first started, of course, it, it was all uh, car boot sales, and uh, ah. when I lived in the south of England, I used to drive all over Essex, going to kind of these car boot sales and collecting stuff. Uh, and I used to, whenever I came to Scotland, I would go around charity shops collecting. Uh, and over the years, it's, it's become uh, a lot of it's more online. Uh, but I, yeah, I still take it around. Uh, and it's amazing what you find just things that people throw out. Interesting that is, that I know someone who's American who was in dire straits at one time and she sold off all of her stuff that she had from uh, thrift shops uh, that she collected in America over the years and um, made a good chunk of money to, to keep her mortgage paid for a couple of months just for a little... She showed me the stuff, there's salt sellers and stuff like that. And the... Yeah, yeah it's, it's all that notion of value, I suppose, uh, and how people, what people put on, on that. Uh, and I've always been interested in that because um, my great-grandparents, or I didn't know my great-grandfather, but my great-grandmother lived in Inverness and it was, you know, it was a house a house, terraced house with an outside toilet and uh, uh, the stuff she had was like amazing and uh, incredible things and you know it yeah. was a very very old fashioned house with a range and the whole thing and it was a, a to- entire other world and I, I used to spend a lot of time as a child looking at all the stuff and had that classic front room with all the good stuff that nobody <laughs> ever yeah. entered because it was too cold because <laughs> nobody yeah. ever everybody stayed in the kitchen because that's where it was warm uh, but when she died, my grandmother just chucked all of that stuff out. Uh, well, no, it was worth a huge amount of money, but she just, it was just old fashioned stuff, yeah. as, as my granny was concerned, because she liked lava lamps and uh, fiber optic lights and, and um, concave mirror, mirrors and convex mirrors. Uh, sorry, I've got you seen it now. Sorry. <laughs> it's funny you say that. My, my, when my great grandfather died, uh, my granny just, tossed all his stuff on the fire one night after he, he died. It was things that were, were like a Scotland cap was there, you know, that she just <laughs> rubbish. Um, uh, you'd just, be surprised how common that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, sometimes there is a thing in that uh, and it's, it's to do with all kinds. It's to do with, you know, it's to do with an emotional investment. It's to do with forgetting, remembering. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm interested in using objects like that because they have a kind of a loaded quality, you know, an old kind of object like that. It carries a kind of emotional baggage and evokes memory in people and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you could just go down to Ikea and you could collect enough stuff to make some kind of um, pastiche kind of type of picture, but I'm not really interested in that. 
No, uh, but it'll have its place at some point, as you say, probably when people have invested enough emotionally in it, but I don't know if the, app, the objects today will last long enough. Yeah, that stuff, exactly that. It doesn't, it, it's not made to last. And, um, you, you know, it, it just won't. It won't be around in 10 years' time. It'll be landfill. The, the, the most important lesson I ever learned in photography, I think, was the first rule of transparency we, we developed at the College of Building and Printing. The tutor said, right, take the six images that you want that you need to submit to do this assessment and then throw everything else in the bin. Because if you don't need it, you don't need it. And he said, if you don't do that today, in 20 years' time, you will be, you will be drowning under a sea of negatives and prints and boxes <laughs> of things you, you're never, ever going to you're never going to use and you don't need. So I was just wondering, in your house, do you have, is there an area maybe close to the kitchen door or something like that that's just shortbread tins and <laughs> concave convex mirrors? <laughs> no, the answer to that is no, but there is a shed. <laughs> <laughs> and there, in fact, to be honest, there are several sheds. Really, yes. <laughs> I was kind of um, I see them as kind of libraries. I was in there this morning, I, I because I'm I'm getting to the the bit when, when I'm making a picture. I, I do all the painting stuff, and you have to kind of clear a path as it were, so you can get in and out uh, to make all the adjustments to the work. But then yeah. as you as you finish all that painting, you start putting things in because you're kind of you're kind of layering or you're creating narrative. And uh, the reason I I try not throw things out is because. I have all these objects that are kind of, you know, I just think, where is that? Um, I don't know, what is it I used this morning? Um, I kind of, what was it I was looking for? It, it was a, it was like a bone. <laughs> was like, like, I've got the skull of some sort. It was like a, it was a crow's skull or something. I'm sure it's in the shed. <laughs> I start digging around. But to me, it's, you know, it's my prop store. And, you know, these, I, I hate getting rid of stuff like that because it, it comes back and it goes in the pictures. And I quite like the fact that people can look at one of my works created in 2021 and see something that is in a picture that was made in 2004. Uh, you know, right. I, I quite like that kind of that referring back on itself. Uh, and I also like to see within the context of different lighting and different... Um, Different, uh, just different contexts of presenting objects, how they how they can appear different or suggest different things. So I really, I mean, I often I have to throw things out, of course, just to create some space, but I, I really don't like it. In a sense, your whole artwork uh, is just really to justify these sheds full of junk that you keep. Is that, is that <laughs> fair to say? <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, um, yeah. Oh, I, I have Quite a lot of it, I have to say. And what's quite nice, if you get enough of it, you, you, um, you forget you've got it and then you rediscover it all over again. Thank you to Callum Colvin for taking the time to speak to me. He's not only a fantastically funny and warm person, his work is completely amazing. Uh, you can view his work at callumcolvin.com and if you have a pair of red and green glasses, then you really should check out the Natural Magic series on his website. You can visit my website, chrismcnulty.co.uk or find me on Instagram. Photographers Talking is a papercamera.co.uk production. Please visit the website for podcasts, pinholes and much, much more. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please like, subscribe or share with a friend. And thanks for listening.